they're frolicking on the plantation grounds because why not? And they they frolic through this. Stefan and Catherine frolic through this garden in the flashback, <laughs> and I'm so and like and the show is like, oh, isn't it so like romantic that they just like frolic on this property? And I'm just like, I am so upset for this house slave that's about to be beat because these two people like are fucking up this garden. Like I am so upset. Like I am so worried about. I'm sorry, guys. This is Alex. And this is Anne. Welcome to the latest episode of The Good, The Bad, and The Basic. This is the episode for Gen X and Millennials who are currently binge-watching old favorites. On this podcast, we'll be discussing what we love, what we hate, and what was just a little bit problematic about the TVs and movies that we're addicted to. Though not necessarily in that order. Today's episode is focusing on a show that took the world not entirely by surprise. The Vampire Diaries. TVD is the show that capitalized off the blueprint of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the sexy vamp trend of the early aughts. Based on the best-selling young adult book series by L.J. Smith, The CW's breakout hit aired from 2009 to 2017. The Vampire Diaries lasted eight seasons on the network and had a die-hard fan base so strong that the series inspired an equally successful spinoff, The Originals. TVD also inspired yet another spinoff, the currently airing Legacies, which has been renewed for a second season. So what do we think made TVD such a hit? And what do we think of the series and its characters? Stay Stay tuned! tuned. (laughs) (laughs) Why don't don't you just say it alone? I think that's better. (laughs) of Vampire Diaries was 22 episodes long. Now, the CW, formerly known as the WB, is known for really, really long seasons, even though they now currently break those up with what they call um, mid-season finales. um, There's still 22 episodes a season, and these series are so long as a result. So let's jump into Vampire Diaries season one. What was the breakdown? What happened? Alex, let's kick it off. Okay, so as we said in our intro, I think when you start getting into season one, you can absolutely see that the show is a direct descendant of Buffy. It lifts from Buffy in so many different ways. So something that 
I think is very iconic about Buffy is that we discussed earlier were these sort of like horror openings and the way um, they would use like certain specific tropes like that are in horror movies and then subvert them. Uh, The Vampire Diaries is the same thing. So the cold opening of, I think, season one, episode one for TBD is this sort of um, horror, like, trope opening uh, that's very similar to Buffy in that, like, it's, you know, some, you know, innocent-looking blonde girl that's, like, scared. And then, um, but unlike Buffy, whereas, like, Buffy subverts it, where... I think the I think in Buffy the episode it's like Darla is like really innocent and blonde and you know they're going through the school and it's like oh gosh what's that and in a standard horror film you would then have Darla being the the one that's eaten or uh, killed but Buffy sort of subverts it and and Darla is actually the one that's eating the guy TBD does attempts the same thing but they stay with that standard horror trope and have the guy like eat the girl. So I think it in season one, it's like Damon, Damon comes and he like, um, he's like laying in the road or like they hit him and he then like kills like the couple that were driving the car. Mm-hmm. So um, in that way, um, Buff, uh, uh, TPD is a huge bastardization of Buffy in the sense that it, it it pins so much on love and very, very little on duty, accountability, or anything healthy, <laughs> and just relies on these very, very toxic horror tropes to um, frame and 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 bring what what um what is falsely called passion. Um, but is really abuse or, or or intensity, but is really just toxicity to these certain narratives and push the romance angle. Real in that the romance is definitely the central is what's central to these characters and central to this particular particular story at TBD. Um, that first episode when you're when we're introduced to all these characters and their relationships it's sort of off the bat is you know really pushing forward these romance angles which i think can be a good and a bad thing i think when it's done right i think that's fine um but i don't know because i think that romance in it in and of itself can be it can be maligned and but i think there are a lot of valuable things about romance uh, that can be looked at and examined. I just don't think that this is the show that um, does that well. I'm, I was almost shocked about how much the show just very casually lifts from Buffy. Like when we're introduced to our, pro, like our main, the, that will be like the infamous love triangle of Elena, Stefan and Damon. Um, you apps you can see it. Uh, Elena is sort of this Buffy figure, um, and you know all these characters are sort of like ciphers for these Buffy characters. So Elena is like our Buffy figure. Stefan is like the angel of the series. Damon is the spike. Um, so much so that like I mean, when you look at Ian Summerholder's performance, there's it's. So referencing David Boreanaz's performance as Angelus, 
um, in a lot of ways, from like his physicality to like the cadence of his lines. Uh, it was just, it's very stark. And mm-hmm. Caroline is sort of this Cordelia figure. Bonnie is very much like a Willow figure. Uh, Matt is, for better or for worse, a Xander figure. And you have, um, and Jenna Summers, who is Elena's aunt, that's actually her name, Jenna Summers. Um, <laughs> obviously, that's Joyce Summers. And later on, you'll have Alaric sort of stepping in as this uh, Giles figure. Um, while I do agree with what most of what Alex said, the show absolutely unequivocally lifts from Buffy and it does so very casually and very often. I don't think it's necessarily that tit for tat. I don't agree that Elena is a Buffy figure. Um, in fact, I think she's supposed to be like the anti-Buffy almost, like the girl who doesn't fight the demons and the girl who does need constant help and does need constant saving. Like like her character is like the anti-Buffy and which is why like at the end of the series, right, unlike Buffy, she gets the thing that she's been fighting for, not peace or harmony, but love. Right. Um, and then we have um, figures like Matt who... I guess I, I can kind of see why on the surface, you know, the comparisons are made to Xander, but, but Matt, if the TVD does one thing, right, is that they actually created a, a character that was, that was much more likable than Xander Harris in Matt Donovan. They do. And, <laughs> um, you know, I was, I say Elena is the Buffy figure, not because that's what her character actually ends up being. I think, that's the position that the show takes. I think the show. Okay, takes, I can agree with that. I definitely right. agree with that. I think that the show and its writers think that Elena is a heroine when, if anything, she is a hindrance and a yeah. nuisance to right. a lot of the people on the show. Right, Elena. It and that's and that's going to be something that's defining through. I think TBD and that becomes, and it's going to be something that becomes stark once we see. I think once we get into the later, once we get into part two of um, the next episode of this, uh, discussing this show, is that due to whatever happened, I think behind the scenes, there is a shift from Elena being the central protagonist to eventually the boys, um, Stefan and Damon becoming the central protagonists. But through right. the first um but through these first four seasons, like it, Elena is, I think the show takes the position that Elena like is it, which. And this is yeah. interesting because you're absolutely right. The show does take that position, but this is precisely what aids in making Elena such an unlikable heroine. Y'all want her to be the hero, but y'all don't have her doing any hero shit. That's so true. <laughs> <laughs> drama, discord, and danger to the lives of everyone around her. Oh gosh, Elena. So, um, so this first season, I guess like you want to, I have so many, there are so many things, like I said, um, so something that I think is smart 
is that the show moves at an at an incredibly fast pace. Um, if Buffy was like the slow burner uh, in terms of plotting and in terms of plotting, um, TBD is like you know the Usain Bolt. Like it's going as fast as it possibly can, and and because it goes that fast, you're not really able to like really think about the the 20 billion plot holes like in mm-hmm. in the in 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 the narrative because you're like wow like because they're throwing so much information at you so quickly um uh that you're just like okay like all right I'm here I'm with you we're going we're going and that's definitely something I will say like for TVD and its legacy to find something nice to say. That's something that I think has carried over and, and has been defining is I think is something that's defining now in other teen shows. I think about, yeah, I think everyone now moves at that sort of breakneck pace in order to like mm-hmm. capture viewers. I agree. Usually the only shows that used to move this quickly are like the one-offs where every episode was like standalone. But when you have like a running narrative this way, um, TVD and Pretty Little Liars definitely set the tone for those very, very, very fast dramas right. where every ep- all the episodes were interconnected, but there was always some new shit going down like every episode. Every episode. It's like, it's go- it is going, going, going. So, I mean, something that I in the rewatch of this, just something that I felt was like, by the, I mean, besides all the racism, like, um, <laughs> girl, which we'll get into you guys. We're so, we're holding back. We, we we're so to, ready. We're so ready to jump into this. Um, something that I found like by the time I got to, by the time I finished rewatching that first season, I was like, huh, like I, felt exhausted I was like oh my god I'm tired like I want to take a nap (laughs) like the thing is like I like I said when we were talking about Buffy the show does with every episode what shows used to do at the season finale like they give you like this cliffhanger and there's just so much anxiety and so much drama stuff that should have been built up over several episodes are compressed into one episode and it's literally draining (laughs) <laughs> right. So, like, a plot in season one is, like, Vicky, Jeremy's on and off girlfriend, um, Vicky, who Damon sort of will end up turning. I think it happens. She gets, she eventually gets turned into a vampire. But the plot is, like, you know, she's, like, this stoner, towny girl. And Damon, she hooks up with Damon one night. And then I think in a fit of sort of, like, petulance and rage, Damon turns her and then they have to teach her how to be a vampire but she doesn't take to it because um she doesn't take to it well so then they end up having to stake her and that kind of plot is usually like on Buffy would have been would have happened throughout the course of an entire season on TBD it happens in like six episodes it's it's wild yeah Especially since Damon's relationship with Vicky was clearly like a, a mirror to um, Angelus's relationship with Drusilla. And on Buffy, we see how he tortured her over the course of months before turning her. And that's why when she became a vampire, she was this like uncontrollable creature. Right. Um, so, does, um, yeah, Damon does kind of do the same thing. Right, where, like, he kind of, like, toys with this girl before turning her. Now, um, 
this is like this is this is like a lesser plot. There are kind of many lesser plots, but the major plot for the first, I want to say, third of this first season is Stefan's relationship with Elena. Now, Stefan, um, as we find out later in the season, had actually been there and witnessed the car accident that killed Elena's parents, and he saved her. When he saved her, he remarked on her, you know perfect resemblance, like identical resemblance to uh, a vampire he and Damon used to know, Catherine. And after that, he followed her and watched her for months to make sure that she wasn't Catherine, even going so far as to enroll in the school that she was in. And when he became sure that she wasn't Catherine, he basically um, allowed her to believe that he was just a regular Mystic Falls student. And in so doing, he's trying to groom a 17-year-old girl into a relationship. Yeah, I, yeah, so Stefan is definitely, like, this angel type figure. He could never compare to Angel. Um, never. He could never. <laughs> he actually can take Elena out to lunch because, um, um, they have daylight like, rings. Right, TVD vampires, some of them have, like, daylight rings, which were created for them by witches, which allow them to be out in the UV rays. Like, this, he's supposed to be, like, the good guy to Damon's bad guy, but Stefan shows himself to be constantly not a good person. And so no, realizing that this girl was, in fact, not Catherine, but, but wanting so badly to pursue her that he would enroll in her high school is some stalker-ass, predatory-ass, grooming-ass shit. Period. But what really takes, but what really takes Stefan, like, away, like, from, an, like, I think what really... De- take Stefan away from like an angel sort of comparison like that's the departure is um angel was always about that life and Stefan just really isn't <laughs> like um he is so lackluster um in that angel's sort of like creed I mean angel angel and Stefan both have like similar um desires and that they're both sort of trying to atone for bad things that they did but angel sort of was like took that shit seriously and you know going so far as to kill Darla like not really not hesitating to kill Darla very much you know working against uh, Spike and Drew and those and those are people you know that were his family I guess you could say like Darla was somebody who he who he had been being with for like a really long time whereas mm-hmm. Stefan just kind of lets Damon do whatever um and you guys uh, when I when we say Damon terrorizes the population of Mystic Falls, I mean is like a terrorist. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it's terrorizing. It, it's it's very very scary. The things that Damon sort of does is very very scary and very violent and very cruel. And and you know Stefan just Stefan's really just trying to clean it up more than stop it more than really have a commitment to being like, no, you're not going to do this. Like, I think he, he tries to, Stefan tries to like feed Damon's monster in hopes that like it will be appeased or that he'll finally get his like fill of violence, but he never does. Right. He either tries to feed the monster or try to tame the beast. But sometimes when you have a rabid dog, you need to put them down. And Stefan's not ready to do that. He's not ready to do what it takes. And the fact is, um, 
like like Alex said, this is what stops him from being an angel because he can't he doesn't he doesn't have what it takes. But the show actually um, makes it very clear that you know, despite all of the beef between Damon and Salvatore, uh, Damon and Stefan Salvatore, which is you know a more or less a more or less resolved by the end of season two, um, they still love each other. And they love each other more than they love Elena. She is set by the writers of the show as the thing that brings these two feuding brothers back together and mends their relationship. And so our protagonist is literally like a tool. Right. So Buffy was like super feminist and you know, all about, you know, that, like, this show is the absolute antithesis of that. Let's get into some of these, oh, like, these things. Oh, gosh. So, some of this, because I think we're talking about some some of the stuff, and, like, let's, let's really kind of get into it. So, one of the first things that shows up, like, in season one that is, like, horrifying, <laughs> it's just horrifying to, to, to watch and sort of, um, parse out is this relationship that um, happens uh, between Caroline and Damon. So Caroline is sort of the, you know, mean girl, Cordelia type figure. She's, you know, blonde and really peppy and sort of a ditz. But um, Damon immediately, but and she actually goes for Stefan first, but Stefan sort of gives her the brush off. Um, and instead- Cause he's she, already grooming Elena. Cause he's already, you know, he's into like our protagonist, Elena. And um, to say it's like uh, scary, I feel is to just not say enough. Um, I think by the end of like the second episode, Caroline is like all in and I think she goes like, or she takes Damon to her her bedroom or something to like have sex with him. And he immediately like, I think bites her and like has sex with her. And it's, it's, it's just very disturbing. So like the vampire myth, like within and of itself is like a very sexual one. Like we talked about this, I think a, a bit on our Buffy episodes, but the thing is that Buffy um, just because of the fact that, like, you know, it's, like, his teeth, like, their teeth get long, and then they puncture your neck, and then, like, you know, blood starts to flow, and then they suck on it. Like, it's all very, it's it's inherently sexual. Um, but, um, but whereas Buffy made it, like, something that was very frightening and very scary, and it, TVD makes, really leans into that inherent sexuality of the vampire myth, and feeding on the vampire diaries is something that is like pleasurable and like sexual as well as um it happens during sex or like before sex or after sex tvd doesn't just lean into it girl they dive right the fuck in <laughs> like like tvd really really equates blood with sex and feeding with sex and like vampirism with like a, a form of hedonism, which was portrayed on Buffy, but what being a vampire on TVD like heightens all of not just your senses, but your urges as well. So like everything you feel is stronger. Joy is stronger. 
um, desire is stronger, anger is stronger. So basically, like it's like um, it's basically um, cocooning you in these emotions and this body that is strong and feels invincible, especially for younger vampires, who um, the show says are faster than their older counterparts. So one of the things that um, that is like super fucked up about um, Damon and Caroline's relationship. Um, aside from the fact that it is, you know, statutory rape, is the fact that Damon compels her to um, to um, to not run, to not talk about the relationship, to keep allowing him to feed on her and and um, to keep sleeping with him, and even later uses her to um, as a tool to get something that he needs from Bonnie. Really, this like sort of feeding like feeding feedy relationship and having it be so sexual is like really uncomfortable in a lot of ways because like they never the show never shows like feeding within the context of just straight violence it's always like within a context of sexual violence which I think makes it um which just makes it even more uncomfortable Right. The early 2000s introduced us to vampires that could like were sexy and could like glitter and shit. And like TVD definitely played with the sexy vampire narrative in a a major way, because in in TVD, even as these vampires are feeding, they still look good. Season two, season one, episode three, Friday Night Bites. The the open the cold opening is horrifying. So like in the last I think in the end of the last episode, you have. It shows, you know, Damon is on top of Caroline and they're like having sex. And um, then he just sort of, I guess he's like, he just finished like, you know, polishing her off. And um, he's like working his way up her body and then his face changes and then he feeds. Um, and she, she screams, she sees this way, she screams, she's terrified. And then he like goes for it um, and bites her and feeds. And then the next episode, Friday Night Bites, season one, episode three, this cold open is um, Caroline waking up in, and he's sleep, and Damon's sleeping. She's waking up and she's terrified because she remembered, because he hasn't compelled her yet. So she remembers what happened. She's super scared. So from that, we can infer that, you know, he fed till she passed out. And from the blood loss and there's like blood on her pillow and like still blood on her neck and she wakes up she's scared and she's trying to very quietly sort of tiptoe out um to it hoping that he's still he's not awake to get away and just as she's about to reach the door he you know vamp like speeds in front of her and you know, essentially just, like, rapes her, like, and he, like, smells the blood from the, he smells, like, the blood from her pillow, she screams, she's saying, please don't, like, please stop, and then he just goes for it again, and then it cuts to black, and we see the title, um, yeah, she tries to run away, and then, you know, he just goes for it again, and it's, and this is sort of, this will be like the basis of their relationship of her like being horrified and terrified and him sort of going into her mind and taking her agency away from her and taking her consent and taking her and just taking her it, like it's 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 rape like and it's 
horrifying. Right. And it's and it's something that will happen to so many girls throughout the series. And then this is a person that the show takes the position that like we should be empathizing with. And it is it's 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 terrifying. It's it's so disturbing, you guys. It's so disturbing. And, like for most of the series, Caroline hates Damon with the passion of a thousand sons. And like like as well, a viewer with with a brain, you understand why, but she never actually talks about this relationship as why she hates him. Right. And I'm and, just like, why? And why then that's aren't the thing the is that, that like, he raped you. <laughs> and then that's the thing. It's like she. I don't even think she does hate him. I think she. I think when she gets turned into a vampire, she remembers and she's upset for a moment. But then you have later on in the series, you'll have. Caroline really working to to save him and laboring to protect him in a way that's very and all these characters eventually will in a way that is really just just upsetting just generally upsetting speaking of relationships that are upsetting we need to talk about Bonnie Bennett girl right oh gosh okay Okay, so a little backstory for our listeners. As I said previously, TVD is based off LJ Smith's series. And in the series, there are some noticeable differences with Bonnie and Elena. So in the series, Bonnie and Elena are still best friends. Um, like Caroline is like not the third best friend. She's just kind of like another friend. Bonnie and Elena have the closest relationship indisputably. And besides looking different with Elena having platinum blonde hair in the books um, and Bonnie being a white girl of Scottish descent, a druid witch, Bonnie is also the secondary protagonist in the books. Not so on the show. On the show, Bonnie is very much existing to be a support, almost a handmaiden to Elena. And in that way, um, a, a support for all of the other major characters. She is a a a made a part of the principal cast, but she is treated with the disregard of a, an auxiliary character. And Bonnie on the show TVD is race bent, and she's um, a black girl. She's coded as black. Um, she, uh, played by Katarina Graham, and the show takes the position that you know she and Elena are best friends, uh, but they don't really treat her as a principal character i think oh no 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 i she's definitely not a principal character but she is in the principal cast <laughs> bonnie on tbd is a really in everything that subsequently happens with her character and then i think just how they treat race in general on this show i think is a perfect example of you know please god um listen to your black writers or you need to consult black people or you really just need to be thinking these things through when you're writing these things um because the position that bonnie ends up being in is one that is super whether the show intends it or not and i don't think the show intent intends it but it is it is racist because first of all all the black people in the town are dying (laughs) like all the people that get killed on the show are black all the sort of like featured extras that you know the vampires end up feeding on always are like black or like other women of color um 
other non-black women of color, like all they all die. Um, I think in that, I want to say, uh, oh, after Damon finds out that Catherine isn't in the tomb in that first season, um, you know, and he's feeding on and sort of like, you know, raping and compelling these girls. Um, there's like a bunch of them. I think three of them are women of color, like visibly women of color. Uh, and it's just, and then, oh yeah. And then the boys are like former slave owners. There's like, Child. everybody so. was literally everybody, but um, Matt's family and, and well, as a white character owned slaves in Mystic Falls. All of the founding families were slave owners. Slave owners. And they like, and the show tries to like brush past it. And that's not really something you should just be brushing past. Like, or like, and <laughs> it's nuts. So, I mean, I guess we can talk about, so I guess one of the main things that happens is. Yeah, Emily Bennett worked with um, Jonathan Gilbert, Elena's ancestor, which puts a whole different, uh, it makes their dynamic of Elena and Bonnie even that much more problematic. But Emily was like, I guess, traded between the families. Cause like she's, Emily Bennett is in a bunch of these like sort of loopy plot lines. Damon is trying to open the tomb with the vampires and Emily possesses Bonnie and destroys a crystal. He needs to open the tomb. Emily came back from the grave to like make sure that like these vampires didn't get released. So um, that, you know, the people could be safe. And I mean, I guess that makes sense since they only seem to eat black people. Um, mm. uh, and, but the whole episode is like a flash the episode like it is just like a flashback um, it's also the episode where I think you know Elena has like discovered that like Stefan is like a vampire and like now he's sort of like recounting like their whole Stefan and Damon's whole like rivalry and like life or whatever and oh my god, the flashbacks, you guys, are so nuts. Like, I'm just so, everything about it is just so upsetting. Uh, I don't even know where to start. So we start on, like, they're on the plantation. Like, De Stefan and Damon, I guess, are, like, wealthy landowners. And they are, they live in a, on plantation, and they are slave owners, and they own slaves. And... You know, oh, no, 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 no. The show is very careful about not putting them in that light. So it just is that their father, Giuseppe Salvatore, is a, is, a, is a slave owner and they're living in their father's house. They're not directly responsible for the slavery. They're just reaping all the benefits. The benefits, which is like <laughs> dumb. Like, no, like you live there. That's your dad. That's your house. Like you're a slave owner. You know, you're inheriting the slaves when your dad dies. Like, shut up. Like, um... Uh, and that's what I'm saying. The show thinks like it's being clever, and I'm like, no, because like I have a brain and I understand how like transference of property works. Um, <laughs> I like the, the whole the whole. Listen, like Alex thinks that this show and its writers are not intentionally racist, and I might I I I have felt this way about um other shows i feel this way about buffy i just think they don't know how to write black people and didn't hire any black people but with the vampire diaries 
because of the culmination of how trash black characters are treated, especially Bonnie, and the way the show romanticizes um, the 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 um, pre-antebellum era, it, for me, it's clear as day that the show is very much racist, but passively so. They okay. think that if they're not more blatant with it, that then that the viewers might miss it. But the, from everything to the Founders Day festivals to these damn plantation era flashbacks, Emily Bennett, Bonnie Bennett, like it's a hot ass mess, you guys. That's a strong position. I'm not, and I'm not. I don't. I don't want to say that I'm against it. I just. I don't know what I am. I think I'm just, I'm in awe. <laughs> like, I think that's what I'm, so anyway, so Stefan goes, so the, so episode six, like Stefan goes to, he takes Elena to like his old, like the ruins of the old plantation home to be like, this is, this is where I'm and from. Somebody thought, that, somebody thought this shit was romantic. That's what, thought that this mar- shit was romantic. Oh my let God. that marinate, you guys. Someone thought a trip to Yule Plantation was like the height of romance. Yeah, where his family owned other people. And then even then, he, and then even then, that's not what takes precedence. It's like, let me explain to you about this girl that we both used to have sex with. It's like, what? Make this right. Up. So after. After Kat, uh, um, Elena sleeps with Stefan, and again, Stefan is a predator. He might not prey on women like Dane, like Damon does by compelling them, but he was trying to groom a teenage girl, and he groomed her so far as his bed before telling her that the reason he took interest in her in the first place was because she looks exactly like the vampire who turned him and his brother. <laughs> And so, oh gosh. So the flashback is like, yeah, we're at this this plant, and they're they're frolicking on the plantation grounds because why not? And they they frolic through this. Stefan and Catherine frolic through this garden in the flashback, <laughs> and I'm so and like and the show is like, oh, isn't it so like romantic that they just like frolic on this property? And I'm just like, I am so upset for this house slave that's about to be beat because these two people. Like are fucking up this garden. Like I am so upset. Like I am so worried about. I'm sorry, guys. I'm so juvenile. But when you said why not, I just started thinking about that Hillary Duff song. Excuse yeah. me. <laughs> why not fuck up someone's life? <laughs> like, like and that's pretty much what was happening there. So backstory on Catherine. She'd spun some yarn that she was um, some poor orphan from Atlanta. And they just took her into their house. And I guess that's a lie that you could tell back then before like social media and like background checks. (laughs) Well, I mean, I feel like I understand why they didn't question it. Because she rolled up in like a carriage. She had like a slave with her. And like she is a white girl. I feel like I get that. I mean, all of these things could be true, right? That she's a white woman with a slave. But it could also be true that she's like a fucking serial killer. You don't even know. Like, you know, this girl doesn't even sound like she's from Atlanta. What are we even saying right now? What are we even saying right now? But, the sh- <laughs> but they're just like, this is fine. And Catherine's there. And then Damon comes back in, like, full Confederate, like, Civil War, like, regalia. Oh, my God. And once again, y'all, this show is like, aren't these boys, these are, like, these are your romantic heroes, you guys. Like, 
And Damon's like, oh, I'm back from the war um, because I just didn't feel, I didn't feel like fighting it, not because slavery is bad, but because I just didn't feel like it. And I'm a rich white man, so I really shouldn't have to. Um, was it, was, was it Damon, like, wrote, didn't the war end? He came back when, like, the war end? He deserted. Right, right, right. So the show takes a position also that Damon never wanted to go, but that he did, he went to make their father, Giuseppe, proud of him. Now, right. like, let, let's talk about some historical inaccuracies. First of all, we didn't have Italian immigrants in this country at that time in the South. Period. They weren't landowners in the South. The first Italian immigrants came, I want to say about 60, 56 years later, and they were all living in like the New Jersey, New York, Rhode Island areas. So to put them as Italian in the first place is kind of like, what the fuck? Um, and put and, and put Salvatore as like one the Salvatores is like a founding family is also kind of like clusterfucky. But then you go a little bit further to the fact that, you know, like Alex says. Um, they are romanticizing the hell out of him because he's a veteran, even though he was clearly fighting on the wrong side. But the show, like, is very much expecting you to just, like, be on board um, with that, I right. guess. Um, right, the show romanticizes the racism and the classism of that time period in present day. This is very evident in their treatment of Bonnie and in their treatment of Matt, who's like the only poor one of their friend group, like Matt Donovan and his family, including his sister Vicky, who's the girl that Damon turns into a vampire, and the girl that both Tyler and Jeremy were dating at one point into a vampire. She is Matt's little sister. And no, she's right. Matt's older sister. Excuse me. She's his older sister. And they're like the poor white trash of that friend's circle. And the show very much doesn't give a fuck about their poverty any more than they care about the racial um, dynamics and the power hierarchies in Bonnie's relationship with everyone. Right. And I think what really makes... And, and when you get these flashback episodes and you take into the fact that, like, Matt is poor and, like, the sort of power dynamics, it makes the fact that, like, when you jump into these present-day storylines where Damon is, you know, threatening Bonnie's life over things she can't control and when, um, and when Stefan isn't stopping him and when um, they're sort of... And then when Elena is callously sort of saying like why don't you like Stefan why don't you like Damon it just it adds that layer extreme uncomfortableness Bonnie's grandmother and Bonnie perform the spell to open the tomb for the vampires right and then she was killed off because the spell they were doing um was harnessing too much power and she's an old woman and she died she dies we don't get a funeral for her. Her character is not honored in any way. And Bonnie is given zero time to grieve before Elena uses their friendship to emotionally blackmail Bonnie into being cool with her boyfriend and his brother. Right. And it's like, here's the thing about Vampire Diaries. When I say a lot of the shit they do is intentional, I mean that from the bottom of my heart. A lot of people die on Vampire Diaries. And if it's anyone that Elena, Damon, or Stefan are close to that person is honored properly. Now, mm. again, the episodes move very quickly, so we're not gonna dwell on it, but they get a funeral. They get, they get, they get people grieving them. Bonnie is the only one left to grieve Grams, AKA Sheila Bennett, and there is no funeral for her. Um, Damon is the only character who's shown as feeling bad for more than two minutes about it. And 
Stefan is like genuinely confused as to why Bonnie doesn't want to speak to him. That's true. He's like, why, why don't you want to speak to me, Bonnie? And it's like, um, have you guys met you? Like, or, and have you guys like... Stefan and Elena don't understand why Bonnie is mad. Damon, the sociopath, is upset that Grams died. Our, our, our heroes, our, our, our lead couple in the beginning of the series who are both framed as, quote, good people don't understand that Bonnie is grieving and that she justifiably blames the Salvatores. Right. But this, this is who we're supposed to be rooting for. Stephanie yeah, and Elena. It's Stephanie and Elena. So season one, episode 19, uh, there's this, like, it's like a, it's, like an important episode it's where elena is like part of like this miss mystic falls contest or whatever and i think it's the first foreshadowing that like damon and elena will eventually become a couple caroline is like a is part of this contest and you know elena's part of this contest because it's for like founding families yeah bonnie's excluded and i think this is the chief difference between like buffy and tbd like buffy um would have put bonnie in that contest uh, and this is just from like a narrative and a writing perspective because um, on by this episode, by this episode, um, season one, episode 19, Stefan is like, and this is what we're talking about um, in terms of like this show moves so crazy fast and throws so many things at you. We haven't even gotten to this. Um, Stefan is, I guess, falling off the wagon. He has like a problem when it comes to drinking human blood. Yeah, and he's, by like, this, he's like a vampire version of an alcoholic, basically. Like, basically. And um, he, and by this point, he's sort of, like, fallen off the wagon um, due to, like, previous violence. They're sort of raising the stakes. So this episode is about, like, raising the stakes on Stefan in terms of, like, just showing just how out of control, like, he is uh, with this problem. And had, if TVD, like, had, like, a quarter of the juice that Buffy had in terms of like the writing. Um, what happens is that this ra- this other random girl, this character that we've never heard of, is also like in this Miss Mystic contest, and Stefan eventually just like feeds off of her. Uh, if, like I said, if this show had the juice, like they would have put Bonnie like in that narrative. And granted, it would have been worse, but like um, they would put Bo- Bonnie in this in that position to be like the girl that got fed off of and mm-hmm. eventually had and then had to like be saved because then you would have like really strengthened the tensions like between Elena and Bonnie and then you would have been able to give Elena like a real sort of questioning and, and internal conflict of like should she be with this person but right. they don't because like the show is ridiculous and like and- you would have had <laughs> and you would have had like a real good solid I think to this show at least reason of like why Bonnie is like really against these boys Mm -hmm. I mean let's be first things first she already has a solid reasoning and and that reasoning should be that reasoning should have been solid enough for Elena as well but the show makes it very clear that even though Elena says she loves Bonnie and she says Bonnie's her best friend the only one who's actually um, living by those words is Bonnie. Bonnie is clearly the one who goes above and beyond for Elena every single time. And one of the things where this show um, differs from Buffy and why Elena is literally, like I said from the beginning, the anti-Buffy 
is in the way that both Elena and Caroline are perfectly all right with participating in things in which um, Bonnie is excluded. Buffy would have never even gone to a club that Willow couldn't get in. Right. Period. Right. Like, what are you even doing? And they're glamorizing this, like, well, I know Bonnie... They didn't even basically acknowledge that Bonnie couldn't compete, which I think was worse than saying, you can't compete, but I'm going to do it anyway. They, Bonnie right. just didn't compete, and they just didn't talk about it. Right, exactly. They just, like, they, they just, like, push her off the narrative, even when, like, she, like, her character could absolutely be pivotal and important and is important that the show just doesn't care. Underutilizes Bonnie constantly. And like I said, she is, she's overutilized when it comes to having to save everybody else's ass. Bonnie is a quintessential mammy character and it's, it's painful to watch. It's exhausting to watch. And that's no shade to Kat Graham. She's not in the right, she wasn't in the writer's room, but this character was trash and I cannot believe she was written so terribly. Uh, yes. All right. So by the end of season one, we find out that Catherine has been, was never in the tomb and she's been out here in these streets just doing her and the boys are, and they don't know where she is, but they've been tracking her down or like trying to find her and she's been sending um, agents into Mystic Falls to sort of do her bidding and in the season finale where we're, we're introduced to her. I, I mean, in that season one finale, we're introduced to her via Isabel and John, who are mm-hmm. minor characters. They're not super important. Um, right. Well, they're kind of important. It's kind Isabel, of important. Isabel, as we find out later this season, is um, is um, a, large a large wife that wife. he thought was dead. He thought mm-hmm. was dead, but she was turned into a vampire by Damon which was consensual. It's what she wanted. The one consensual thing that child, happened. Child, child. <laughs> uh, and then John Gilbert, whom Elena and Jeremy thought was their uncle, um, is um, Elena's biological father. Uh, yeah. So, and, and, and Elizabeth is her, Isabel is her biological mother. mother. So her and Jeremy, while they're legally siblings, are biologically cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was adopted by... Um, by John's older brother and his wife. Mm-hmm. So th- th- there's a lot going on here. And a lot going on. One of the bigger, like one of the, 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 the subplots that we didn't touch on, you know, as much as we should have is that the girl, Anna, that Jeremy starts seeing once um, Damon compels him to forget Vicky um, or forget about their relationship is Anna, who is also a vampire who existed in Mystic Falls with her mother Pearl at the same time that Catherine did. And um, her mother is one of those vampires stuck in the tomb. So she and Damon are equally invested in opening that tomb, but for completely different reasons. And as Alex said, Catherine was never in there. She was living her best life. (laughs) She was out living her best life, doing her, because that's what she's about. We like meet, I think, Catherine, who has been like this figure throughout the season like in in our minds and like we've seen her in flashbacks we finally meet her in the present day storyline so if I had to pick some iconic episodes from season one I would pick season one episode three Friday Night Bites season one episode nine history repeating season one episode 18 under control and season one, episode 19, Miss Mystic Falls. And then 
season one, episode 22, Founders Day. Yeah. yeah, I think these 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 are like the crucial episodes to like basically um fr- see the relationships between the characters on the show because for better or for worse the, the the way that things end in season one are pretty much how the relationships will stay for the duration of the series and the people we meet. The only character that goes through a real character change, the closest thing to a true character arc and development, is Tyler Lockwood whom it's foreshadowed in season one and proven conclusively conclusively in season two is a supernatural being as well. Um, I would also add, I would also throw in the pilot episode in there. I think it's a much must watch. I think if you've already watched the series, watch it again and really take note of how predatory Stefan's behavior is. (laughs) Like that's all I'm going to say about that. Yeah. So M if we had to talk about season one, the good, good, bad, or basic, it is addictively basic. <laughs> oh, it's addictively basic. I would put the racism is so exhausting in this first season, you guys. So, ex- and you know what? Like, it doesn't get much better later. To be very honest with you, <laughs> like I just so I'm gonna, but I'm gonna be with M, and I'm gonna say um, just basic. No, I'm going to put, no, I'm going to say bad. It's bad. I don't like it. I mean, it's addictively bad. It's addictively bad. Right. I'll say the one redeeming aspect of season one is that season one might be the only season where there are not a bunch of glaring plot holes. Plot holes. That's true. Season Um, one, I think, is the strongest, probably, plot-wise. Right, and I think they do well with like some of the subsidiary characters they introduce, like John, Isabel, Anna, who will become a recurring character, and Tyler, uh, Tyler, who becomes like a part of the supporting cast, and and Catherine, who becomes one of the most iconic villains on the show. But I don't yeah. really think she's a villain. We'll talk about that later. Let's, talk- Let's jump into season two, you guys. So real quick, before we jump into analyzing season two, I'm going to give a quick breakdown of like what happens. Okay, you guys. So let's just break down what happens when we get into season two. Season two, um, Catherine forces her blood into Caroline's system when Caroline is in the hospital and turns her into a vampire to send a message to the Salvatores as well as Elena. Tyler's uncle Mason arrives into town revealing that he is a werewolf and that the werewolf gene runs in their family. In this show, you don't necessarily become a werewolf by being bitten, um, but because um, you've taken someone's life, whether that's intentional or unintentional. It could be self-defense. If you have the gene, you're still turning, which is some bullshit, but we'll talk about that later. We meet original vampires, so the first group of vampires to ever walk the earth, and we find out their connection to Catherine, why she's a vampire, how she became a vampire, and what she's doing back in Mystic Falls. And then we meet Nikolaus Michelson, aka Klaus, who will become a recurring villain on this series, and also the lead in the TVD spinoff series, The Originals. On this season, um, first Catherine and then Klaus take turns playing the antagonists. And unfortunately, in this season, um, Jeremy and Elena's aunt, Jenna, dies. Um, This season, you guys, is so, 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 so much. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about 
all the things that made this season so memorable. So first off, Cat, um, Caroline becomes a vampire. She's more or less in control. And um, aside from one casualty who is, you guessed it, Black, um, she's able to rein in control of, of her vampirism very, very, very quickly. Um, the show also does a really good job of expounding on what was a like a, a, a starring character on season one, but becomes a supporting character on season two, Tyler Lockwood. Tyler meets his uncle Mason, who's come home to look for something. Um, and Tyler re- learns that Mason is a werewolf. The werewolf gene runs in their family. And now we learn why Tyler and his father, Mayor Lockwood, were so affected in season one, where that honing device that basically targets vampires um, targeted him and his father. The device actually targets all supernaturals, and that's why they were affected, because the gene runs in their family. Mm-hmm. So the first antagonist of the season is Catherine, but then the second antagonist is Niklaus Michelson, a.k.a. Klaus. I know. Oh, yes. We meet the originals. Oh, God. So let's jump right in. The, obviously, by the end of season one, they're trying to reform Damon's image. Um, season one actually ends with um, Damon kissing who he thinks is Elena on her front porch but who is actually Catherine it was very clear from the beginning that he had feelings for Elena you know re-wanting to possess her but by the end of the season he he actually had some respect for her as much as someone like Damon could muster um when they kiss on the porch you're like okay so Elena's really feeling him and then we very quickly find out that this is Catherine but he doesn't right Catherine is I don't know Catherine is like a ray of light in the in the cold, cold darkness for me. Child, listen, Catherine's <laughs> a real one. She's a she's, she's a real the one. Me. And if you think she's a villain, you just come fight me. Meet come me outside. fight me. Meet me outside. Cause like she's a hot girl. Like she's like she's one of the OG hot girls. Like um, she just does what she wants. And she's all about her. And she doesn't right. give a fuck about any of these dudes. Like, she doesn't care. Like, nah, she's all for number one. And this is the thing where, like, if we want to make a a, a a character that's even, like, close to being, like, the strong female character on The Vampire Diaries, it would be Catherine. It would be who, ironically, is casting the role of villain. So let's give to our, our listeners some background on Catherine. Catherine Pierce, formerly known as Katerina Petrova, is... um. Uh, an Eastern European girl who, um, you know, had a child out of wedlock very young and was disowned by her family. And she went to Western Europe where she met um, the Michelsons, including And this Klaus was like in the 1600s-ish. Right. Right. So she met Klaus and his family. And, you know, this, this young lord took such an interest in her and he was wealthy and she was poor. So this girl was trying to marry up, would secure her future and do what she had to do. And then she finds out what his real interest is in her. For whatever reason, the Petrova family produces doppelgangers. This is never fully explained in the entire series, but she is one of those. It's retcon. (laughs) Exactly, it's retcon. So she's one of those Petrova doppelgangers, and he needs her to break some sort of curse that's on him. And she finds this out. Girl does what she needs to do because, again, she's not Elena's dumbass. So she runs for the hills, and um. 
she realizes that the only way to stay alive and render herself useless to Klaus in his, you know, as a sacrifice is to become a vampire. So she basically tricks someone into turning her and no, she beats like, her best life. Like, okay, like, and this comes later on in this series. I don't think we, we see this in season. We don't, we don't see two. this yet, but I feel yeah. like it's like critical. But like, to know basically but like you guys the the way she does it is so hard like she's so hard like she i think she like takes she um she sneaks one of like vampire blood from one of from one of the originals and then she drinks it and then you know what this bitch does she like gets on like uh she because they're like holding her they're um some people are responsible for holding her and making sure she stays safe and like while one of Klaus, I, one of Klaus's minions, I think. And when they're out of the room, this girl, like in the room, fashions like a noose <laughs> and like right. puts it around her neck and then breaks her own neck. I was like, damn, like do you know how hard she has to be? She's like, she is hard. She a gangster for real. She's like a for real, for real. Like she is about that life. So I, I like, think what yeah. she did was like she cut herself with a knife or something. Like she cut her hand. And so one of the vampires that was in the room fed her his blood to heal her. And then old girl, old girl you know, um, um, noosed herself. And then when they took her for down from the noose, obviously she was now a vampire. And she just killed the nearest old lady in the room and dipped. And like the blackest person on the show is Catherine. Yeah. Curious. <laughs> She's a survivor. She did what needed to be done. And from the most of the series, people only hate Catherine because, because she either she beat them to the punch doing what they were going to do themselves but sooner or she's just smarter than them and foils their attempts to use her she refuses to be anyone's tool she refuses to be anyone's footstool she refuses to be anyone's support you gotta have her back or she's out it's all about what's in her best interest interest. and i'm like and i respect i just respect all of that like she and that's the thing and that's like i think that's what's that that is really what makes Catherine great. Catherine's not like trying to like rule the world or like hardcore and and she's not stepping. She's not trying to like murder everybody like on the eastern seaboard. She's not Damon where like she like takes ple- I I don't think she ever really takes pleasure in like m- like like murdering people. She yeah, she definitely doesn't murder like, for addiction or she definitely doesn't murder for addiction or sport. Or she just wants to like be rich and like have sex with hot boys and just like keep that move and like and keep that moving. Like I just and like I stand like I I stand like I just I stand so hard. It's interesting how throughout that season and throughout the show, I think that Catherine is juxtaposed as like the inferior to Elena because she's like the bad guy. And like, the thing is when Catherine says she's stronger than Elena, it's true fam. She did everything she had to do on her own. On her own. Anything that she couldn't do on her own, she bargained. Like she was not out here threatening witches. Like she would bargain with, she bargained with Emily. If anything, she's probably the only one that treated the witches as an equal because she understood how powerful they were and she wanted to get them on her side. Um, And, and, the thing is, Elena wouldn't have even survived season one if she didn't have like an an army of people ready to lay down their lives for her. Whereas Buffy, say- has, Buffy has friends. Elena has 
pawns that she's friendly with. Mm, that's I gotta think about that. That's real. I, like, I but Buffy would, but like here's the thing: Buffy's friends would gladly die for her, but she wouldn't let them. She would die for them first, and she's proven it over and over again. Elena says, "These are my best friends," but when push comes to shoves, they're the ones doing all the sacrificing on her behalf. When push comes to shove, she just she knows that like those two white boys are gonna come and save her. <laughs> right, and if if it's not Damon and, and Steph, she depends on them, if it's not. Her. Stefan, it's Matt, it's Bonnie, it's Caroline even. There are like, there's like a hierarchy of people who are positioned as supposed to be sacrificed for Elena and Bonnie's at the top of that list. What is Elena actually doing? Like, is she, because I want to like, what is she actually doing? Because I don't, because she's clear, like, you know, she's a protagonist, but is she really like an active character? Like, is she actively making choices? No, 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 no. Decisions that she's, is she making decisions or is she doing things to, I think, help along? Like, to is she the one that's actually driving the narrative or are things just happening to her? And I think it, it is. It's very much like things just happen to her. And, and she's not somebody that's act, actively working or trying to drive the story forward, which is a problem, I think, for your right. if, that if your main protagonist isn't doing that, if things are just sort of happening to them instead of them driving the actions, I think you will always get a weak a weak protagonist that way. Right. One of the things that makes Elena's quote unquote stand out as a protagonist is Damon and Stefan's feelings for her. This and the, like the fact that these these boys want her and Matt Donovan wants her for a good portion of season one as well. Um, they, it makes it makes this attention that they give to her make her seem special. She's not actually doing anything to showcase herself as special. Her parents died, but that all got nothing to do with her. Um, you know, um, late, it's later revealed that um, her birth mother is now a vampire, but again, that has nothing to do with her. Right. Um, what one of the things about Buffy is that a lot of things did happen to Buffy, but Buffy was always shown as someone who had agency and made decisions once presented with a set of circumstances. And Elena does not. Absolutely. Um, Buffy people, is people, driving the action. Buffy's right. making choices. Buffy's coming up with plans. The narrative comes from Buffy's decisions and agency versus things just happen happen to Buffy. Right. One of the things that, well, one of the many things that make, also makes Elena so incredibly unlikable is that the, the story has to keep reminding us, telling us that Elena is special. She's True. special because Damon and Stefan want her. She's special because Matt wants her. She's special because, um, you know, um, she is a doppelganger. And she even says herself in season two when she realizes that she's a doppelganger that, you know, I, Stefan, I can't blame you and Damon for bringing this into my life. It's me. Um, this is all my own. This is my own drama. This is my own mess. So these things that she has no control over make her special. She's not actually doing anything special. I agree with that. And I just, it's exhausting because like, honestly, I came away from season two, just feeling like they really should have just let Elena die. Um, <laughs> like just let her die, please. There just, and if she's smart, if she were smart, if she had half the, the, the strength that Catherine did, she would have just turned herself when she realized that she was a doppelganger. Right. Or she would have there. And I think there are, I think back in season one, there's an episode where Elena gets kidnapped by Anna 
and one of Anna's minions. And it's, a, I hope I named it, but it's a standout episode in that I think it's the only episode that really showcases or you get the inkling that Elena is like a smart person or that and she can make like good decisions. <laughs> the shade, fam, the shade. <laughs> like, and it's actually a great episode in terms of like, I think tension building. It's a, it, it's a good like tense episode in a sort of thriller vein. Uh, but you and know, it's probably the only episode where Bonnie and Elena are in danger and Elena is like taking the initiative to get them out of the situation. Out of the situation. That's true. She's the it's the only time Elena like comes up with the plan herself, like in collaboration with Bonnie to where she's taking agency over her own life instead of just being like Stefan or Damon will save me. Right. And it's the only episode I feel where like she's putting Bonnie first. Not just saying I love Bonnie and Bonnie's my friend, but actually putting Bonnie first. And we, we're, we're going to touch more about Bonnie and this, this seeming martyr gene that she seems to possess later on. But um, fam, what do we think of season two? Is it good? Is it bad? Or is it basic? <sighs> season two is so... Oh, gosh. Um, season two... I guess season two gets points for Catherine Pierce, because we get a lot of Catherine Pierce in season two. Um, mm-hmm. But I also feel like season two, uh, oh, and the in the, the the episode about the werewolf bite is a great one. Um, I think those mm-hmm. episodes are good ones. Um, and I guess, you know, we get the originals, so that's some... I hate the originals. There, um, there, yeah, there are a lot of highlights in season two. I think, two. I think that, that, that you know, expounding on the werewolf and, like, basically shifting the werewolf narrative to where it's, like, a genetic thing, mm-hmm. it, I think was, was, a really, was a really good stroke of genius. And you I, know what? Making the, making the werewolf bites fatal, like, was really good and, because, like, I think the vampires start to feel like too powerful. So having right. that like werewolf bite being like completely fatal, I think is is smart and good. Um, mm-hmm. I would say season two is like it's it's basic. It's fine. Um, yeah, I would say season two is both good and basic, um, but not good and basic in like the good way. <laughs> like the things that made it basic did not help the good. Like the good things were good in spite of the very, very basic. I really like the entrance of Rose, who's going to be like, a, you know, like a, a minor recurring character and who Damon meets and probably the first real attempt I see to try to humanize and rehabilitate the character of Damon. Um on the show um especially when he like literally like murders mason lockwood on this season um i really i mean it tortures me tortures mason yes really it's really bad i really like how um the evolution of caroline's relationship not with the matt who she starts dating this season but with tyler who they start hinting at feelings for I kind of like Tyler leaving town and going his own way. And I think this plays a critical role in why he's the only character that truly evolves in the series because 
he, he kind of was put in a position to put himself first, figure out what he needed to do for himself. Because I feel like ever since everyone else's lives revolve around Elena and she doesn't make any major growth, neither do they. So, so one thing I do want to touch on is that I think I, so one of the things that got me at least was this, uh, you know, you have these vampires and they're horrible. They're horrible. They're so horrible. And this show, but the show definitely takes the position that we're supposed to be empathizing with these characters, that we're supposed to be empathizing with them. I think the show even takes the position of coding them as a sort of marginalized identity at points, even though they are killing all the people in these towns. And the show takes the position that, you know, if you are a human and you're against these vampires and you're, you know, you're rooting for the humans to sort of kill them off, that that that's the wrong, that's not how you're supposed to feel. And one mm-hmm. of the things that I think, which is crazy because we just explained about how, like, one of our main protagonists, Damon, has been, like, raping girls for, like, two seasons now. The way that the show gets you on these characters' sides or, like, gets you on the sides of the vampires is by playing into something that's actually very ugly um, in that I think they use, like, the innocent, helpless white woman trope to really get you to, to, like, be on the sides of these vampires. The way that they'll do that is that they will have either Caroline get kidnapped or tortured, or they'll have like Elena get kidnapped and and have the boys save her. Um, And that will be sort of be used as an excuse to excuse all of their previous bad behavior, even though they're killing all the black people in this town. Yeah, basically the the show is saying that you can murder a thousand people, but if you can save one, that means there's still hope for you. Right, Um, and and yeah, but even this act of like Caroline turning into a vampire. So Caroline gets kidnapped, uh, I think, by these werewolves, um, and they're trying to um, get gets kidnapped by these werewolves. The show sort of frames it, and I mean, they do. There, it's really horrifying, right? Because she's like in a she's like in a cage, and they like torture her. But like, if you think of it in essence, but if you sort of step back. From, in, from your sort of, I think, feelings and the narratives and really look at it, I don't think anyone is bad to like, I don't think, I don't think they're antagonist. Like the show takes the position that these werewolves are so mean and bad, but they're kind of justified, right? Because the show mm-hmm. does tell us that like werewolves are almost extinct because vampires have wiped them out for the most mm-hmm. part. Um, we see these vampires like killing everybody in this town. The werewolves are kind of right for like you, like their positioning, like you're, you get like why they're doing what they're doing. But I find it fascinating that like they put, they use this sort of idea of like helpless white femininity or like white femininity being in danger as a sort of like justification for all these violent acts. And I think the show definitely plays into that and plays that up in order for you to feel bad for these vampire characters. And I think mm-hmm. that's very ugly because I think it's um, a, a very entrenched American thing that we do uh, that's had mm-hmm. a lot of horrible, like I think ramifications in real life. 
I completely agree with Alex. And I want to also expound on a point that I, that's been rolling around in my head. One of the biggest issues with Vampire Diaries is they simply don't know how to um, measure out blame and hold certain characters accountable. One of the biggest examples of this is, since we were just talking about season two, Catherine. So Rose and her friend, I forget his name, were the vampires that were supposed to be on guard for Catherine. So they've been on the run from class as well for centuries because they allow Catherine to turn and to escape. And Catherine's been on the run because he's upset that, you know, she took this route to save her life rather than be a willing sacrifice to his own agenda. And in all of this, Rose is blaming Catherine. Like no one is blaming Klaus. They're blaming Catherine for doing what she had to do to save her own life. Mm-hmm. Um, and then later on, um, you know, um, even Damon says that um, Catherine brought this drama into Elena's life. Not Klaus, the person actively trying to sacrifice her. Mm-hmm. But Catherine, this is Catherine's fault. And it's really interesting because it's very clear that they want Catherine, the writers and the showrunners want Catherine to be a worse person than she is. They want to yes. make her villain so bad, but it's like, what would you do? What would Jesus do? <laughs> <laughs> like, y'all need to chill on judging old girl because it's not really that, it's not that deep at all. Like your real problem is right here. He needed Catherine not to save his life, not to save his family, but to break some curse that he was under. But we're mad at old girl for trying to survive? Are you serious? Right. And then it's like, you know, Stephanie and Damon don't suffer consequences for their actions. Never. <laughs> like, ever. Ne- in this in this series, they don't, there's never really a point where, you know, they have to, to answer. I, listen, like, and this is something we brought up in Buffy, you know, Angel goes to hell. You know, it doesn't matter that Angel, it doesn't matter after Angelus, I mean, after Angel turns and becomes Angelus, and then even when he turns back, uh, he still goes to hell. He has, he's held accountable. Um, Buffy gets held accountable. You know, Buffy has to live with the consequences of her decisions. Um, every character on that show does. Damon and, Damon and, and Stefan don't ever, ever really, truly answer for the things that they've done. Not once. Well, yeah. And, the, and you know, again, I, I hate to plug Catherine again, but it's relevant. They both legitimately think that they're better people than Catherine is. And I'm like, bitch, where? What, bitch, where? I like Delusion. I, I, Delusion. I would like to see it. I would where? like to see it. The way that the werewolf mythology on this, on this show works is that you have to kill someone to trigger your werewolf curse. But how that person but it doesn't matter how that person dies so it can be an accident if you crash a car if you get into a car accident somebody dies or like if you it can be indirect whether it's a direct or indirect it will trigger the curse and you know matt is compelled and to pick a fight with tyler and so is another girl that i think tyler's hanging out with at the time they're both compelled to pick fights with tyler and even then, the way that the girl dies, it's an accident. It's an accidental death. She just hits her head. She tries to, I think, stab Tyler, and she misses and falls and hits her head. There's that element of it as well in terms of thinking about fault. 
But even in that, Tyler's held accountable. You know, he's, he turns into a werewolf. He has to deal with all of the pain that is involved with being a werewolf and going through that. Tyler in, in himself is held accountable for, but the boys never are. Right. Um, going back to Tyler, um, what's interesting about the werewolf um, mythology on this show is like Alex says, it doesn't matter how the person dies if you're responsible, even if it was an accident, even if it was self-defense. Now, um, what the interesting thing about Tyler is that when he's presented in season one, he's very clearly like money bags, douchebag, um, who doesn't really care about anybody, not even his close friends. Um, like he, um, he hooks up with Matt's mom. Um, he's like doing that on again, off again thing with Vicky because she's poor and he's ashamed of her, but he's like the only character with who, with one exception. And we'll talk about that in the later series has never shown any violence towards women on the show. He is someone that became a, a werewolf through no fault of his own. And he still has to suffer the consequences um, and, you know, he still has to leave town and things like that. And however, unintentionally, this is probably the only reason why his character shows any real growth, unlike all the other characters on the show. It's interesting that he should be punished for something that he didn't do intentionally. But the show makes it very clear that when you become a vampire, like once you turn dying with a vampire's blood in your system, you have a choice. You can let yourself die or you have 24 hours to feed on human blood and the transition will be completed. So making becoming a vampire is a very real choice. Even if you didn't want somebody's um, blood in your system and your death was an accident, the becoming a vampire is a choice. And um, they're not punished for that choice, but Tyler is punished for something that is very much an accident. He didn't choose to have the werewolf gene and he didn't choose for that girl to die. So the show, it definitely has a habit of like punishing people for things outside of their control or, um, or, or making it seem as if um, to punish anyone that is seen as opposing the protagonist, no matter what their personal motivations might be. Like the, the show really, really doesn't care about anyone's motivations save the protagonist and it does a really good job of portraying the protagonist is always good and the antagonist or adversaries is always bad even if their motivations are like understandable are, are yeah are understa understandable or altruistic and our protagonist motivations are selfish Anna's motivations for wanting to open the tomb for example were just to save her mother and but she's portrayed as like a bad guy and like a bad influence on jeremy Right. And That's true. Like, it was it was a lot, you guys. It was a mess. Such <laughs> a mess. And it doesn't escape me that Anna is visibly non-white. <laughs> yeah, um as well. Like she's a she's a non-white character um that you know has a very that is essentially punished because of, you know, the de the decisions of the protagonists when she's trying to do what she's trying to do to free her mom, the show takes the position of like, oh, isn't Anna so bad initially until, mm -hmm. you know, she gets with Jeremy, then they sort of ease up on her. Um, right. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's all very uncomfortable. 
very uncomfortable. So let's jump into season three, you guys. Season three, you guys. If you thought that this show was problematic before, they were just getting started, you guys. So Mm -hmm. here's some highlights on season three. Season three, we learn more about the original family, um, including Klaus's siblings, as well as his mother, Esther, who is, quote, the original witch, and their father, Michael. This dude's name is Michael Michelson, you guys. <laughs> um, who, who, is a va- who is a vampire and vampire hunter. Damon and Elena's feelings for each other grow this feeling, th- this season. Um... And um, um, Damon is still looking for Stefan, who left with Klaus last season um, after Klaus, believing that his sacrifice went well, left a dead Jenna in his wake. Um, So, like, there's a lot of other stuff going on this season. Um, This is the season that Elena dies um, at the end of the... Anna and Vicky return as ghost characters, and because Bonnie saved Jeremy's life... Um, and brought him back from the dead. Contrary to her ancestors' advice, he's able to see those ghosts and they want to use him as a gateway. Well, Vicky does anyway. We meet Elijah's other siblings, Rebecca, um, Elijah, Cole, and Finn. So it's it's a lot. Let's jump into it, Alex. What do you think of season three and the relationships? I'm not going to lie. By season three, I'm like, I was really tired. <laughs> I didn't... <laughs> <laughs> I feel like so that's valid. real. That's valid. That is so valid. Because it feels like you've been watching for six seasons by that I'm point, honestly. Just like, because it's so, you guys, there's, they, they just pack so much plot into each season. And then it's never, and then they're just so, it's so racist. And then it's like so sexist. And then so you're having to deal with all of these things. You're having to deal with like this huge, this like really intricate plot that like, only makes sense like 50% of the time and then you have to like get past the racism and you have to like get past the sexism and then like I'm just like what I just want to take I just wanted to take a nap um but I don't know there's some I there are a lot of things about season three that I liked I oh okay so I really liked um in season three episode three you know Season three is, like, where Stefan is gone, like, completely off the wagon in order to save Elena. Cause, oh, not to save Elena, but to save Damon um, from last season because he was dying of, like, a werewolf bite. And Klaus's mm-hmm. blood was, like, the cure. And so he went off the wagon and went and, be, and agreed to be Klaus's sort of, like, minion. Um, and that sort of... And so their trek across, like, the U.S., uh, Stefan and Klaus's truck is like sort of where we pick up and season three episode three they have to undagger Klaus's sister Rebecca and they go to New Orleans to try to find out how Klaus can make more hybrids or whatever and there is an actress there's an actress that plays an old like her name in the in the episode is Gloria, and the actress that plays older Gloria is amazing. She's great. I want to see her in more stuff. Um, <laughs> that was a lot just to talk about how much I really loved this one black actress that appears once in this season. But I don't know if I can stress enough how wonderful she is. Because um, 
obviously there's a lot of plot on the show so there's a lot of exposition and exposition can be like really boring and horrible to get through but like this woman is so great that she just gets through it and makes all this exposition and all this sort of like mythology stuff sound so cool and so important and it's amazing and I just love her I just want to see her in more stuff that's it that's all I've got mm-hmm. um I agree with that so going back to how season two left things so as we previously mentioned when a werewolf bites a vampire that is deadly but because Klaus is a character that is both vampire and werewolf the a hybrid his blood is the cure for vampire bites Damon is bitten by Tyler Lockwood in season two before Tyler leaves town and he's dying. This is actually where he and Elena share their first kiss. She kisses Damon on what she believes to be his deathbed right before the cure is messengered over to the, the Salvatore house and they're able to save his life. But the bargaining for that was that Stefan would leave town with, um, with um klaus now again this is one of the many things where i will point out again this show isn't about how much these people love elena it's about how much they love each other and how elena brings them back together and this is made very clear when he is willing to leave elena vulnerable and alone with pretty much no explanation um except um to save his brother's life had it not been for catherine like like telling him like Stefan's the one who got this for him. They would have never even known why Stefan was gone even because it's not like he was able to leave a note or anything. Um, it's interesting because with Stefan out of the picture, like Damon kind of swoops in and it's not nearly as predatory as previous seasons would have led us to believe. It's definitely not as predatory as Stefan's initial relationship with Elena. It's really a situation where he has these feelings going for Elena and he feels genuinely guilty because his brother's absence is allowing this to manifest. And he does care about getting his brother back first and foremost. Absolutely, absolutely. Season three is season three is just like the episode, the season of like the this where we do like these deep, deep dives, I think, into like the originals and the original mythology. I, I want to say their their backdoor pilot is even in this season. It might be. Um, it is. Or no. It is. It is. Oh, okay. It is. It is. Yeah. Because this is, this is also, this is a season where we don't just meet all of the original siblings that are still alive, but we also meet um Marcel on this season. But yeah, we meet all, we meet all of the Michelsons, all the originals in season three. And um, we learn about their past in New Orleans, like their shared past with Stefan and things like that. Uh, uh, you know what's horrible about season three? Okay, so <laughs> in season three, I they the show like ret- I think the sh- there's like a, so there's a character that's introduced I think in the beginning of season three, um, called Andy Starr. and she's sort of Damon's paramour, but it's so I think her character is super frustrating and she's not even a character she gets fridged I think she gets fridged by episode three I want to say like early on in the season um for people who don't know what that means fridging is a trope uh that's common in television where you it's a female character that exists solely um to forward the narrative or for the character of a male character and then is killed um, 
to and then her death motivates um further motivates like the the plot for a male character and andy star like gets fridged um and it's horrible because I, the show like returns to these like weird rapey roots like it's like these root this like root of like damon just like raping and like these women or like just imposing his will and it's supposed to be and the worst part is that the show takes the position that like it's supposed to be super charming or isn't it so great how damon is like dating this like grown woman because she's a grown woman she's like a tv reporter she's of age so and the show i think is trying to say like oh isn't this so great that like damon's dating this like woman who has like her own job her own money like and she's grown but then it just um, then they just go on to fridge her and it, it sucks. That's yeah, okay. I I saw it a little bit different than that. I absolutely thought that the relationship was problematic. I was mad that Andy got fridged and was never really developed in any way. They tried to frame the relationship as different than the one he had with Caroline. Um, because Andy says herself on several occasions. However, I never really saw the show trying to portray the behavior as charming. What I saw was much more insidious. The show tried to make it seem like this behavior was okay because he was grieving Rose. Oh, that's worse. That's I. It was worse. Like he killed. Like he's doing. He's doing all these things again because he's in so much pain, you guys. So it's okay because women get to be collateral damage when Damon is hurting. That's true. And that is something that they, that's, that's very real. And that's something I think that they established way back in season one. Like women are allowed to be like hurt or like disposed of because Damon is like sad, you guys. That, that's, that's real. Where his brother basically like, um, you know, feeds like on a rampage due to addiction, Damon feeds, um, um, you know, as a result of whatever tantrums he's feeling. Angry Damon and Grieving Damon are like the two dangerous sides of Damon. (laughs) So real. So real. So yeah, season two started with Andy Starr and Andy's death was used as like something that to like basically rock the, 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 his relationship with Stefan because Stefan kills Andy to send a message to his brother to stop looking for him, stop tracking him, like leave me alone. This is my life now. And Damon is upset and he's hurt. And, you know, it makes it, it takes the position that he's actually grieving Andy when he goes back on these night capades, basically terrorizing people. Right. Um, terrorizing people again. Ugh. Yeah. So like Andy was his like, his like response to grieving Rose and then like, you know, being like, pillaging the the village basically is how is his, his grieving of Andy. And the thing is, Rose is like the only character other than Elena that we actually see him form a real non-compelled bond with. So his reaction to Andy was very, very out of left field. Clearly you didn't love her that much. You didn't respect her that much and you didn't trust her that much because you were still compelling her. I will say one of the shining things about season three is like the evolution of Tyler and Caroline. I think that, that really starts, that, that starts really coming into full I was uh, here for blossom. I was really here for that. You know what I was not here for? Tyler's do rag. 
No, I was not here for Jeremy <laughs> cheating on Bonnie with a ghost, you guys. They hate Bonnie so much. They just hate her so much. I don't they even know. They really hate this girl. I don't know what's up, what it was about Cat Graham or black people in general, but they really hated Bonnie, and it showed. Bonnie is more concerned with Elena's feelings insofar as dating Elena's younger brother than Elena was concerned about her grandmother's death. Right? <laughs> but... Elena gives her blessing, and then and only then does Bonnie feel comfortable dating Jeremy, who is very much into her and has had a serious glow up in season two, you guys. He was fine, okay? He did. He so had they, a serious glow up. <laughs> so they started dating, and lo and behold, season two, she brings back the love of her life using magic that her ancestors told her not to use. And her punishment? He cheats on her with the ghost of his dead girlfriend. And then Elena's not even mad. Or, or like... No, that's not what happens. So he cheats on her. That happens. He cheats on her. And then El- and then Elena's upset. And then Bonnie, because they, because God forbid Bonnie feel upset about anything bad that happens to her. Bonnie's like, it's okay, Elena. You don't have to be mad at Jeremy too. I understand. That's your brother. Like, where's Bonnie's support system? Bonnie is a literal doormat. She is accommodating to the point of like personal um, distress. Her mom that uh, I guess gave her up and even her mom was like, maybe you should get away from these white people. Like this isn't, this isn't for you. Her mom abandoned her when she was a toddler and she's being raised by her father. And it's very interesting to note that Bonnie and Abby, her mother and her grandmother, Sheila are all named Bennett, but her father is, um, his last name is not Bennett. Yeah, his, he has a different last name. No, we see her father season four, um, but it is implied that Bonnie's parents were never married, which is which is a very stark difference from all the other characters on the show. Like even Matt's parents were married, you guys, and he's like poor white trash or supposed to be. Um, like, um, and it's not a big deal that they weren't married. It's a big deal that they chose this character to to portray that type of family. Um, of all the characters, even though like her, her father is very successful and her father becomes the, the mayor in later episodes. Cause in the, in the season, in the, the show's opening, Tyler's father was the mayor, but Bonnie's father later becomes mayor. Right. When Tyler's mother dies. So something that I want to, you know, reiterate is, you know, if you're any type of writer and you're listening to this show and if you're you're white and you're like, well, I'll just never write Negroes. How about that? It's not, I just, it's not, all of these things, it, the, all of these things are happening. And even the way we're talking about how like, no, notice how you have Bonnie's like family structure that's, that's different um, in contrast to all these other characters. It would be okay if like, the show used it or if like it was approached in a way that furthered her development as a character or because none of these things are bad in and of in and of themselves it's the fact that like no one on this show like the writers on the show the showrunners don't seem to be thinking through these things now emma's like is of the position that like they're racist <laughs> which is yeah. like fair um i I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt um, because I don't love myself, I guess. And um, 
a joke. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, I guess I don't love myself. That's fine. But um, I, I just, it, these things can be useful, but like you have to think them through. You have, ultimately you have to be loyal to the character and understand like how do these, and really make it, make it a point to uh, justify and know how do these, uh, how does this character's family structure, how does this character's, you know, experiences then begin to shape who they are and who they're becoming. The, I think the biggest fact, I think the biggest sticking point of this, this series, um, which I think M funny enough, you already nailed it on the head. None of these people grow. Like none of these people change. Like none of these people learn anything. Um, they stay in stasis. I think, like you said, Tyler's probably the person that experiences the most growth and change over the course of the series. I would say the next person that experiences is probably Caroline. Um, and even then, uh, because, and, and even then I think it's because Caroline becomes more active in, in the way that Elena isn't. Like things don't just happen to Caroline. Caroline is making decisions. She's driving plot lines. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why she grows. I think the next person to really, I don't think Damon or Stefan, I think they have points, but then they revert. They usually like revert back to who they were. Um, and then I don't think Elena does for the most part. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. I'm going to share my opinion on something that Alex just said, and this is something that we disagree on. Um, but because of shows like this um, and the way that black characters in general have been in a, a sort of stasis um, when handled by black writers over the several decades, I, I genuinely feel this way. If you're a white writer out there and you're thinking, well, I just won't write any Negroes. Thank you. Please don't. You don't have the range. And those of you who think you have the range absolutely don't have the range. And I'm going to expound on this. When people of color, especially black people, exist in this world, we must exist as two people simultaneously, who we are and who we have to be to exist within a white supremacist, anti-black society. We have white teachers, white coworkers, white bosses, and we're counting on certain white people and organizations to open certain doors for us. We are counting on them for home loans, bank loans, car loans, whatever it is that we need. It is a necessary evil in our lives. And because of this, and the fact that we were exposed to a wide variety of white characters um, via media, we do have the juice. We have the range to write white characters convincingly. But the reverse isn't true of white people. And as a result, you cannot write black characters well. And the, the, the latent racism isn't just in how these characters are portrayed. It's in how overwhelmingly white the writer's room is. It's in the fact that um, you want this character who is a mammy and a martyr, and instead of leaving her white as she was in the book and just reducing her from a secondary protagonist to a support system, um, you thought, why not make her black? Why wasn't Caroline black? You understand what I'm saying? Like, why was Bonnie the person who gives the most, who sacrifices the most, and who is developed the least and allowed 
um, her her space and her emotions and her periods to grieve the least. Why is this person black? It's not just a matter of writing a a a, a, back, a black character badly. This character specifically was written completely without compassion. She's just a badly written character. I guess my thing is is that I think that that would have happened either way. I think if I think if you make Bonnie white again, and then maybe you make Caroline the black character, I think you get I think you get the same outcome. I think you get a character that's written without compassion. I want black characters on screen, but it is it is essential to have black writers off screen driving those characters and making them work. Y'all don't have the range. Please, please stop. I will literally binge watch a show with little to no black characters before I will I stand and I wrap a, a character like this just because she's black. Bonnie was a disservice to the portrayal of black women. She was. She's just, she's not, I mean, I don't know. I like she, I'm not gonna stand her just because Katarina Graham is black and and call that representation. Who are you representing? This isn't real for anyone, let alone a black person. No person is this accommodating, this this unselfish, this serving, this supportive to her own detriment, to her own heartache, like Bonnie is supposed to be. Right, right. That's real. And and that's why I say like you have to at the at the end of the day, like, what are you doing? And this is what I'm saying, like, and this and funny enough, I guess this is how we know like it's a race thing because like because when Matt, Matt is um, sidelined, but even, but when Matt becomes like this like vampire hunter uh, later on in the series and when he doesn't like want to mess with the vampires it, like that hard, that tough. And when he becomes a police officer, all of these things are like understandable and make mm-hmm. sense for the trajectory of like this character as mm-hmm. written because he's, yeah, right but like they don't really care about Matt at all until they decide to make him until they decide to make him somebody somebody worthy and you'll see in those later series as well um this comes on the heels of him finding out that his family was one of the founding families this therefore makes him worthy in the first four seasons he's he's just regular ass white trash so he doesn't matter he doesn't matter um and but even then you know we like you said we don't see Bonnie's dad till season four we see like Matt's mother has like a whole plot line like you know we see him grieve for Vicky like he forges friendships with Jeremy mm-hmm. um he forges a friendship with Jeremy I feel like Bonnie's just out there all by herself I want to say that of all Bonnie's friends he's the only one who's not out here like using her like Matt would be the only person I would say in that friend group is actually Bonnie's friend by season two and not just someone who needs her. There, It doesn't happen a lot, but when there are sort of scenes with Matt and Bonnie, they're always very, they hit different. Like they're very poignant. So Zach Rorick, who plays Matt, and Kat Graham, who plays um, Bonnie, are really, really good at... Um, emoting a sense of warmth and compassion and empathy for whomever they're speaking to on screen. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is very evident in their relationships with both each other, as well as Elena and Caroline. And um, what happens in their scenes with each other, it's almost this unspoken understanding, like, 
like if he should have to go to Bonnie and Bonnie should have to go to him, it's because they really can't go to anybody else. Like you can't trust these hoes. Like <laughs> basically that type of situation. Like it's that type of situation and it's unfortunate. But um they are kind of put in the underclass of the friendship. They are. They're put in the underclass of the friendship and of the narrative. Um so season three. Oh yikes. The season three is just like the season of the originals. I feel like, mm-hmm. which I think does it. I think it, they do a disservice to the show in a way because I feel like there's so much original. There's there's just too much originals. I feel like I don't care about anything deep deep in terms of like the plot that's happening. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, is it good? Is it bad? Or is it basic? Eh, it's basic. Yeah, I think season three is basic as well. I kind of wanted to see less of the originals. The Michaelsons were incredibly aggravating to me, especially Klaus and his daddy. Like, and yeah. his daddy, yeah. They're, they're, <laughs> they, they, I think they put a drain. They're a drain on that on the narrative in this season, right. particularly after we've had two seasons of so much plot and so much has happened to these characters. I think there was a huge opportunity missed in season three to like have the narrative turn inward and Mm -hmm. for this sort of friendship group to really grapple with each other in terms of everything that's happened. I think Mm -hmm. it was, you know, like we were saying, I think season three was a chance to really, you know, have Bonnie sort of step up and be like, I don't want these, like you, I don't want these vampires in this town. You guys are like bullshit. This whole thing is bullshit tensions and divisions and conflict to form within the Mm -hmm. friend group and have that drive the plot for season three rather than introducing a whole bunch of group of new people right right and this is no shade to the actors again i understand the type of character klaus is written as i understand why this 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 um this character so consuming for lack of a better word um and you know um joseph morgan who plays klaus is a very intense actor and that's what that character needs i don't see klaus the way that the characters on the show see him as like this super intimidating bad guy i see him as like an 800 year old man child what he thinks (laughs) is what he thinks is like intimidation i just see as like a large tantrum so i mean intense in that fashion um, and and his, his his character is further portrayed as someone who is very much a child and very, very deeply insecure and feels that he can barter and trade and buy and sell relationships and alliances. And he's very immature. And just having a character who's that old and this fucking basic is very exhausting to watch. That's true. That's real. Um, so let's jump into season four. Like, I think we both agree season, season three is kind of basic. Like, I don't, there's nothing good in it for me, honestly. Yeah, there's nothing in there for, for me for season, season three. Okay, season four. So where do we pick up in season four? Season four, uh, we wake up with Elena as a vampire. She died with Damon's blood in her system and she is now a vampire. She hasn't fed yet because they're looking for like loopholes or whatever, but she is someone who's like pre-transition vampire. We meet the five who are a group of, of, of like um, uh, supernaturally ordained or deity and, and ordained vampire hunters. And we learn that Jeremy is, um, or has a potential to be one of the five. 
we meet Silas and Ketsia, who is a witch. Um, Jeremy dies in this season. We meet Klaus's pro protege, Marcel, who is a supporting character on the originals. That's true. We have There's the original backdoor pilot happening. Exactly. It's so much going on. It's a clusterfuck. And again, all I can ask myself is, what is so special about Elena? <laughs> so season four, I think I, this is like when I really become like upset with that Bonnie's treatment. I feel like I just, not that I wasn't upset before, but I become even more, I just, because I feel like, I think I'm upset in season four in particular about Bonnie's treatment because it seems as if they're, uh, they're finally about to give her like her, her own agency and she's going to get like her dark willow moment and then they just take it away from her. Snatch it, girl. They just, they snatch, just it. snatch it from her hands. <laughs> like they're like, nope, you have to sacrifice yourself for the white. So okay, let's jump into um our our feelings about season four, you guys. So in season four, when Elena becomes a vampire, we could have actually had a real protagonist, you guys. We could have seen a real shift in character where Elena be like becomes a stronger person, a more self reliant person, because she isn't. And actually, you know, get shit popping, get her life together. But she doesn't. She, she, doesn't. she, she, for if anything, she becomes even more the damsel and it become, brings even more of the drama. So the season opens up, we have a new um, protagonist. Like I said, this show likes to break up protagonists in the season. And our first, um, our first um, antagonists were Pastor Young and Connor, a member of the five, and they're hunting out vampires. And um, and Elena's in a position where she doesn't want to feed yet because becoming a vampire is her worst nightmare, which could have fooled me. She spends all her damn time with vampires, but you know, the point is she didn't want to become a vampire. Um, and um, there are hunters in town now. Jeremy is descended from hunters vampires and all of their supporters are being rounded up and she is running out of time to make the transition before she dies. So there is a cure for vampirism. It's one cure, one shot for one person. You can't share it. And of course this creates real tensions because a lot of people want the cure. Catherine wants it as a bargaining chip always because she survived as long as a vampire. She's not gonna go back to being a human now. Um, Rebecca wants it so she can lead a normal life because again, and this is where I'm talking about people, people assigning blame to the wrong people or the wrong things. She thinks the reason she hasn't found love is because she is a vampire, not because her brother has been literally killing off every boyfriend she's ever had. Real. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, um, and um, both um, Damon and Stefan want the cure for Elena. Um, Stefan wants it because she, her personality has shifted somewhat and they're less close since she became a vampire. And Damon only wants it because she wants it. He prefers vampire Elena, but because she wants the cure, he wants to find it for her, which might be the first selfless thing that Damon has engaged in the entire series. It's interesting because when Elena becomes a vampire, we learn that she is, we later learn after she and Damon have sex that she is sire to him. Now the sire bond was a concept introduced in season three where people can have an attachment to the person that turns them. Tyler developed a sire bond for Klaus. 
The sire bond never changed the way that he felt, and this is important, he still hated Klaus, but it made him obedient to Klaus. And the same thing happens with Elena. But she becomes obedient to him, unbeknownst to the both of them. Neither of them are aware that she is sire, but um, Stefan is convinced that the sire bond is part of why she's so attracted to Damon, which is not true. Yeah, they hook up after, like, this is the one thing that the show did well, the tension between... Elena and Damon was actually built up over several seasons and not just a couple of episodes. Their relationship is not consummated until um, season four, episode seven, My Brother's Keeper. Something I want to, I think I want to talk about. So there's an episode, I don't know if it's in this season or if it's in the last one, but the the season where we meet it's one of the ones with the originals because we meet, um, I think, Sage. It might have been last season. Okay. Yeah, that was season three. Mm-hmm. Okay, but something I sort of wanted, yeah, something, and I guess I'll put this in like the season when we're discussing season three, but something. We can keep, that, it. We can keep it here since we we can discuss previous episodes in this season, right? Yeah. Um, so we'll just keep it here. So something I want to touch on um, from, so in season three, we meet like a vampire named Sage she comes in in the present day storyline because she uh, is looking for her long lost love, an original whose name is Finn, um, who is Rebecca's brother. And so in the course of this episode, stuff happens and basically Sage, Rebecca, and Damon all hook up. So, um, together. Uh, And this is something I sort of wanted to touch on and part of, like, the hookup is, like, they it, like, starts with, like, they're all feeding on, like, some girl. So, and I want to come back to this feeding thing because the show attached is, like, feeding and sex. But something that really bugs me is that, like, like I said, they all have, like, this threesome. And I think there's even a shot where, like, Rebecca kisses Sage. And it's really annoying to me how they will have like this like super like sexual feeding and then like the girl that they're, it's always a girl that they're feeding on will like die or whatever and they'll all continue to have sex or whatever. And how there's this sort of element of where the girls can be like bisexual or like have like, you know, or like gay, but like God forbid the boys ever feed on like another boy or like there's any, there's no, like, or if there's any sort of element of like, um, like gayness happening for like the boys or like bisexuality, like for the boys. And it's just really, it's annoying. That's all. I, it's weird and annoying. So, So on that particular episode, Damon and Rebecca teamed up to try to get certain information out of Sage, which is why they, they went the route of trying to seduce her via Damon, who she'd had a previous relationship with. But yeah, what Alex is saying is true. The show doesn't handle um, men's bisexuality well. When men feed on other men in this show, which is rare, it is a source of rage. It is a source of rage. It's never about pleasure or power, just rage and who is like a dominant. When men usually kill other men on this show, what they do is like they snap their necks or they rip their hearts out of their chest. Of their chests, And it's very, and it's, it's so noticeable. It's so noticeable that it's that I even remarked on it. I was looking, I was trying to see like when like another guy would actually feed on another guy. And I 
I think Damon does in season two, but it's done in shadow. So like Damon's in like it's done in shadow. So like you you know it's Damon because the shot before it, Damon is like sort of um is lit uh from the front and you can see him his face in profile. But then I think all three of the the actors, because there's a girl there, but she runs away and um the they're all backlit. So they're in shadow and you can't really see it. And it's done like very quickly. He goes, he bites, and then like the guy instantly falls. It's not this sort of like, it's not how anybody else is fed on where like it's this well-lit shot where it's usually a girl, it's very well-lit. Um, season is highlighted by the fact that what starts off as um, you know, Silas and Ketsia and the originals being the antagonist, um, it, it quickly flips to Elena being the antagonist because Catherine kills um, Jeremy. And unlike, unlike pretty much every other character on this show who's lost someone, Elena's not just allowed to grieve, she's allowed to wallow. That's true. So Jeremy dies, I think, this season. Um, or he... Yeah, Jeremy dies, and uh, Elena's allowed to really just do whatever she wants after. Pulls off the fucking rails, grieving in a very Damon-esque fashion, yeah. and shuts off her emotions. And everyone's cool with this because that's her little brother, and he died, and, like, fuck the fact that everybody, literally everyone else in the room has lost someone as well. Right. Like, like forget all that. Like, forget all it's that. Like, it's her brother. Like Elena is a priority, and the fact that the like the 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 not just Bonnie but the cast at large prioritize Elena's feelings over everyone else's, including their own, is why they are so hard to stand because they're not fully actualized people. Right. That's true. It's like it's crazy that everyone sort of this everyone puts everyone prioritizes like and puts on hold everything they're doing because Elena's, you know, brother died. And I suppose you can, and this show uses the justification of, well, Elena's mom died and Elena's dad died and, um, Jenna Jenna died and Alaric died and all these people died. Uh, but those losses happen to everyone. Those losses happen to all those characters in one way or another. And their grief wasn't prioritized. And this is sort of, and this is the shortchanging. This is it. This is why this show, I think, falters in the way that it does, because it doesn't consider everyone in this principal cast when these deaths happen. Um, and it doesn't take the time to slow down and really grapple with these events. So when it tries to then come... So when they dismiss every, so then when everyone gets dismissed in some type of way, whether your dismissal is huge via Bonnie or, you know, light via Caroline uh, or another, then when you come back to Elena and Elena gets this, you know, whole episode and a half for like her brother, you're, as an audience member, you're just like, bitch, pull it together, right? I think think it lasts a little bit longer than that, actually, because first... Um, um, her brother dies and she gets that whole episode where she's with the corpse hoping that the Gilbert ring um, will reanimate him and bring him back and then that doesn't happen and then she burns her entire house down in her grief because 
you know, rich white girls have that option of just burning everything they fucking own in their house. Um, and then after that, like her rage against Catherine and then shutting off her feelings in several episodes of her terrorizing her friends. And then even when Catherine re-enters the scene, like she's still upset and trying to kill Catherine on her brother's behalf. And Elena's grief becomes the fixture for the rest of the season. And I, it would make sense and I would root for her if anyone else had ever been given this type of consideration and leeway. True. Exactly. It's, it's <laughs> like the, uh, the weekend after the funeral, we never got to see you're like, buck up girl. Stefan's my boyfriend and y'all need to get along. <laughs> like, that exactly. Y'all need to get along. I don't care. Like if he used to own your great, great grandma, we don't even really talk about how it affects um, Tyler who had developed a relationship with Jeremy or Matt who had also like known Jeremy his whole life because he and Elena grew up together. We don't talk about how it affects Bonnie who, you know, Jeremy was her first big love. We only talk about how bad Elena feels. Right. Is that it doesn't, it, it just doesn't care. And that's why you end up hating Elena. Honestly, I, you're just like, who, She's not just an unlikable protagonist. Like, she's that protagonist that you can't... It's not just hard for me to root for Elena. I legitimately wanted Elena just to die. So just so every other person could 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 have room to breathe. Right, Her, exactly. I, I concur with that. And, like, uh, there is a final showdown in season four with Catherine and Elena, and they're fighting in the school. And Catherine has the upper hand because she's that bitch. And yeah. Elena, <laughs> last ditch effort, Elena takes a cure out of her pocket and shoves it down Catherine's throat, forcing Catherine back into humanity when she's literally the person who wanted the cure the least. Mm-hmm. So even then, like, and you'll see later on in like seasons five through eight, Catherine is still that bitch. She's still a G and she still does what she, what needs to be done. Oh, um, but Kitty Cat, I just love her so much. I love her so much. If they wrote one character well, it is Catherine. And it's a damn shame that this character is supposed to be a villain. And this shows just how wonky the writer's room was and how lackluster the writing was. That the most relatable character, the most likable character was our, you know, long-term antagonist. Like, true. (laughs) Like... Y'all really made her the most likable person on this show. Like, for real. Like, with not even, like, ironically. She's the most likable character on the show. Like, indisputably. She is a character whose motivations seem to come from a very real place, a very honest place. She's a character that you can most relate to insofar as what happens to her and then what decisions she makes as a result. She is someone who life does not happen to. True. Catherine makes it happen. Um... Everybody has to be here for Elena. Um, and and the show has a really toxic relationship with selfishness. Anytime a character wants to do something for themselves, even if it's not hurting anyone else, they are implored to think about Elena or think about the group or think about someone they love and how this person will be affected and, and not do the thing that they want to do for themselves. And the show portrays selfishness as an inherently bad thing. Well, I don't even, I think, because Stefan and Damon are allowed to be selfish, right? And they are, current, always. They're very much self-serving. Yes, and selfish. No. When, and they, 
when Damon is serving the self, just himself, he is portrayed as the antagonist. When Damon is being selfish on Elena's behalf, then he's a good guy. Okay. That's, and um, But Stefan is very, Stefan absolutely is selfish and, and does a lot of things for like the self and self-motivation. And I think beyond- But the show constantly portrays him as a good brother. As a good brother, right? Like what the fuck is even happening in the writer's room, you guys? <laughs> so, there, so there is like this overarching, I think, characterization of anything that happens uh, that- it, that any of the male characters are served, they're always put like in a, in a in a good light. And then anything that happened that the that the women do that isn't you know for the benefit of Elena, they're always put in a negative light. More than anything, I think something that's huge that to take away if you learn anything from the Van- Vampire Diaries about how characters are written and like how not to sort of keep. Uh, not to keep um, projecting like these like really insensitive um, sort of problematic themes is context is everything you guys context is key context is um, where it's at because when you know when Damon when Damon and Stefan are in conflict with someone like Catherine who we've seen as extremely smart uh, resourceful who um independent independent who is like very who can like give as good as she gets we don't I don't mind that like I don't mind seeing I'm not you know horrified by seeing like a Damon figure sort of you know go up against Catherine in a violent way because you've already established that she is formidable within and of herself Right. right, they've shown her to be an equal, if not superior, to the Salvatores. So, so superior to the Salvatores. The biggest thing, the where the show fails consistently is like in in the narrative, is that they it's clear that the writers are not um, thinking about power dynamic within the show's context, and then also like with how and, and in the context of a large of our our world just in reality that we live in that's where there's failings right so like Mm -hmm. like the fact that they don't consider that like these boys are like slave owners right and like it's not crazy for bond like you know there's a lot of there's a lot of things that are under the rug but are critical to the narrative like we completely ignore our antagonist motivations for what serves elena in the here and now Right. For what, yeah, what serves Elena or like what's serving and then in later seasons, whatever's serving the boys. And that's, and that's, I think the key thing that they're losing, the writers are losing track of like the power dynamics of the, of, of their world that they've created and um, yeah, of, of their world that they've created in the world that, that it's inspired and drawn from. I think season four, is it good, bad or basic? Uh, I just, it's. I feel like season four is where the plot starts to really get out of control, like in a way that's like crazy to me. Like, so I want to say it's bad. Um. Yeah, it's bad as well. Like there were some highlights, like meeting Marcel, who's fine as hell. Um, so beautiful. There was. Um. I don't even understand what was even the point of the Silas Ketsia narrative. What the fuck? It went so <laughs> off the rails so quickly. <laughs> So, so quickly. 
Um, to the point where I can't uh, even recount it on this show. Like, I don't really know what to say. Like, I'm like, um... I actually enjoy the consummation of Damon and Elena's relationship because I feel like it was the only, still the only relationship on this show that was what I like to call a slow burn, something that develops over time, over many seasons, and not just over two episodes. Um, I didn't like the entrance of Professor Shane. I didn't like, like, I didn't, I didn't like how how the writers allowed Elena to handle Jeremy's death. Like, because, again, no one else was allowed to grieve and wallow in this way, she, it didn't make her seem like a real person with real feelings. It made her seem like a brat throwing a, ten, a tantrum. True. It, it had that element to it. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't with it. Season four was so incredibly bad, you guys. That is the first half of our review of The Vampire Diaries. And, yes, folks, it gets even messier. So stay tuned next week for part two. folks this is everything that made seasons one through four of the vampire diaries good bad and basic we've had so much fun with the vampire diaries already and the fun and the drama are only getting started tune in next week for a follow-up episode where we'll be exploring seasons five through eight as well as giving our theories on why such an incredibly problematic show managed to last so very long. Be sure to check out the GBB Spotify account for an amazing TVD-inspired music playlist and follow The Good, The Bad, The Basic pod on Spotify to listen to this and all of our episodes on the go. If you love this sort of content and want more, including exclusive bonus episodes, become a show producer and patron on Patreon. As always, our regularly weekly episodes, as well as all the links on where to find us, can be found on our SoundCloud page. So follow us there as well at The Good, The Bad, The Basic. And of course, be sure to follow us at Good, Bad, Basic Pod on Twitter and IG. Until next time. Bye, everyone. everyone.